You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. In previous podcasts, we've had the opportunity to discuss the aid delivery into the Ukraine, and we've talked to some organizations. We've had some of them featured, organizations that are delivering aid to the Ukraine area that is both within the country and in the surrounding countries where there are numerous immigrants. And we've had, obviously, challenges associated with delivering that aid in a country that's going through a war. And organizations persist in doing what they can. And the American people and people around the world have been enormously generous in providing support as best they could to support what's going on there and to help the people who are who are struggling. And today I thought it would be worthwhile to take this opportunity to speak with someone who's actually been a high-level government official in the Ukraine and to get a sense from her whether that aid is in fact being delivered where it needs to go and whether in fact there are other things we could be doing to support the relief effort there. And so I'm joined today by Natalie Juresko, who is a former finance minister in the Ukraine. And Natalie is an American-born investment banker who had the opportunity to join the Ukrainian government in that significant role some years ago and still maintains close contacts with what is going on there in the ground. So Natalie, I'm really pleased that you found the time to join us here and I'd like to get your take on what's going on. But Natalie, first, I'd like to know a little bit more about you. Can you tell us about your background, how you ended up in that particular role and whether you felt it was um, a job that you were able to do well and get some things done. Thank you very much for having me here, Art. Well, I grew up a child of immigrants, in fact, a child of refugees from World War II. My parents fled Nazism and communism and ended up in displaced person camps in Germany after the war and were lucky enough to be sponsored by very kind Americans uh, to come to the United States. And they came as children with their parents with, I think they were given $5 when they got off the boat. They worked very hard. They had a really reasonably good middle-class life, gave their children the ability to study and and, and learn and and, and get jobs. And I went to DePaul University in Chicago. And I had this uh, constant 
desire to give back, to thank the United States for having given my family freedom. I remember at this point, the Soviet Union was a dastardly place and they were blessed to be able to have gotten out of there. After DePaul University, where I studied accounting, because my parents were quite conservative and wanted me to make sure I could get a job after school, I went on to the Kennedy School of Government um, because that really was my passion, public policy. And I was at the Kennedy School when Gorbachev was trying to reform the Soviet Union, something called glasnost and perestroika. And in the midst of him trying to reform it, it fell apart. And by the time I finished the Kennedy School, uh, the State Department was looking for people to head up a new office to work on economic affairs in the Soviet, at that time in the Soviet Union. Um, and then after that, in the new countries that emerged from the Soviet Union. And I was offered an opportunity to go to Ukraine as the economic section chief, the land of my grandparents, my ancestors. I had never been there. And it was kind of uniting the two worlds, my cultural background, my traditions with what I you know, believed to be a system of democracy and market capitalism that would bring uh, a major benefit if we could transform Ukraine. So I started with the embassy, spent three years there, and then realized that everyone was talking the talk but not walking the walk. And people were very, very impoverished uh, post-Soviet Union, and there was really no investment. And USAID created something called the Western NIS Enterprise Fund. I think today we would call it a social impact fund. And our purpose was to invest in small and medium businesses, but to also show that this could work, that you know, corporate citizen, good corporate citizenship could benefit entire communities, that you could be transparent, pay your taxes, pave roads, produce products and goods for people, and be profitable all at the same time. And so I did that for some 20 years. And then my team did well, despite kind of up and down parts of the economic history of Ukraine. It was not an easy first 25 years. Uh, we had one revolution. Then I spun my team out and started doing real private equity. Larger sums of money, raised private capital, proved in essence that it could be done, and then shifted from taxpayer dollars to private money. After the second revolution, the revolution of dignity, which began in 2013 and ended early 2014, the country really went through a major overhaul. What had happened over these, at this point, 25 years was that civil society really had grown. Civil society became very demanding of its leaders and very willing to reject them if they did not follow through on their promises. And in this case, a former president failed to follow through on the promise uh, to sign an EU uh, association agreement. And young people in the country felt like their, their entire futures were being thrown away. So they began to protest. And while they were sleeping one night in a major square in the city of Kyiv, the president had them attacked and beaten viciously. And the next week, not only students turned out on the streets, but massive numbers of people because they didn't want that type of abuse of human rights. They didn't want that to be their child, their grandchild. You know, that they, they could see that this was turning into a, a autocratic uh, situation. And after that revolution, Russia initially in 2014 invaded and occupied Crimea, then Eastern Ukraine. And so the war that we're experiencing now had its start eight years ago. The, the currency collapsed, the economy collapsed, the banking system was, was in crisis and shutting down, and there wasn't enough money in the treasury to pay salaries for medical workers or anyone else. And at that point, the newly elected president, the 
previous one had fled, who knew me from the, my work in Ukraine the last 25 years, asked me to be Minister of Finance to try and pull together an international aid package for Ukraine, $40 billion, that included a sovereign debt restructuring, so I needed to negotiate a debt restructuring, support from the G7 countries, but also from the international institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, the EBRD, the European Investment Bank, and then also to you know, reform the budget at a time when we were already at war and we needed to direct resources to that war. We also at that point had lost 7% of the territory and 20% of the economy. And we suffered from about 2 million internally displaced people who had left those regions occupied by Russia and left, as you can imagine, uh, with nothing. And so we were dealing with a major humanitarian crises, having to set up a military from scratch and, and finance national security. But we got through it. And we, despite the war continuing and the illegal annexation of that Crimea continuing, the economy started to grow. Civil society became stronger. We had another round of elections, another new leader who is today President Zelensky, elected with some 70% of the vote when he was elected after being a comedian with a new political party because people rejected the previous again and wanted change. They really wanted reform. Now Russia has re restarted or reignited this war in a major, major way, February 24th, attacking, frankly speaking, the entire country initially looking to overthrow the leadership in Kyiv, being pushed back from Kyiv, now focused on the east and the south. But they have blocked all the ports. They have, in essence, strangled the economy. So there are little to no tax revenues coming in. The country is running a 5 to $7 billion deficit just to do the most basic things that need to be done by a government. Pay your medical professionals. Pay your military. Provide for unemployment. And once again, given the level of destruction and devastation that everyone's heard about, we now have 6 million internally displaced people. An incremental 4 million have left as refugees to Europe. So 10 million altogether, that's a quarter of the population, displaced in need, left with nothing but a plastic bag of their personal goods. Two thirds, two of every three children is out of their home. The ability to provide for medical support, pharmaceuticals, is extraordinarily limited because they keep blowing up the warehouses. And so day after day, the needs shift and change, but it is a horrendous war where, where we're facing a situation where civilians have been attacked. And really, I think that was, that's what makes it so, so shocking and so different is that civilians are the target. And so you have a much greater level of humanitarian need than you might in, an, in a war where it's military to military with the odd or, you know, random civilian casualty. Yeah. Natalie, you also happen to be connected to Puerto Rico and you, you have a role there. And one of the conversations that comes up among relief organizations and those of us who are trying to follow what's going on is what's the comparison between the two situations? You know, we, we certainly saw in Puerto Rico, a lot of devastation, a lot of people displaced people who left Puerto Rico and took off to Florida and other places. There needed to be a continuing inflow of resources to get the area back on track. 
yet this is significantly different. In your view, what are you seeing that people should know that is so different? Obviously, the war makes it really difficult. But what are you seeing that makes this, in your mind, pretty diff- different from, from Puerto Rico? You mentioned some of the things that were similar. So, you know, you're facing a major demographic change, as did Puerto Rico. You're seeing in in Puerto Rico, there was a collapse of infrastructure because the electricity system across the island had been hit. That's not the case in Ukraine. In Ukraine, frankly speaking, you know, it's holding up and it's amazingly resilient in that they've been able to, every time they recapture a a town or village, a city, they've they've been able to restart electricity, uh, water and heating when they're able to take back control. So I think the biggest difference that you have to start with is size, the size of this disaster. And Puerto Rico is 166th the size of Ukraine. So Ukraine is 66 times larger. The population of Puerto Rico is 3 million, 3.2 million. The population of Ukraine prior to the beginning of this was 45 million people. I think the hurricane was an event and it had a beginning and an end. And you could look to that end and start thinking about revisiting, rebuilding. And with this war, because it hasn't had an end, you know, we just continue to see greater and greater destruction, movement of peoples. And you don't, you know, you don't know how to plan for the end and when you can start rebuilding. I think the, there were some challenges in Puerto Rico because it was an island. Uh, there were challenges in getting aid timely to Puerto Rico. The ports had been filled with sunken ships and uh, there wasn't an airlift. And so that's not the case in Ukraine. You can use Europe as an entry point for supplying uh, any and all humanitarian goods. I think on the other side, another major difference for us to take into account, again, is that the Ukrainian economy being as resilient and robust as it was prior to the war, it, it means that much can be done there. I, I guess what I want to say is you don't need to collect diapers and food and ship them to Ukraine. It's extremely expensive. That's very inefficient. And most food products can be found there. Finding the organizations who understand logistics and can source it there is really quite valuable and much more efficient. So if you look at groups like World Central Kitchen and Jose Andres, he works with local chefs, cooks, restaurants, people, which is also a very good thing to give them a means to, to, to support and help their own themselves. And he does it primarily with local food products, um, but, uh, but he does bring in some. I think if you look at another big difference, it's that the government is very engaged in Ukraine in the humanitarian effort. In, in Puerto Rico, they were kind of lost at the beginning. It took some time. FEMA had to come in and, and, and set things up. The Ukrainian government has used technology and the internet to really kickstart every effort. And so they've established websites where you can donate money for the cause that you choose, humanitarian, social, financial, military. They've established sites where you can volunteer. If you have a skill or you have something you'd like to donate, you can volunteer and that humanitarian center will ensure that it goes to the right place. They ensure delivery to the last leg kind of all the way down in the villages. And I think we didn't have that in Puerto Rico, unfortunately. It is, I think, unique in a war environment for a government to be this well, this capable 
of organizing volunteers and organizing the delivery of aid. And I think that's a benefit right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm gathering a sense without having been there that there are parts of the country that are functioning very well despite the war. And that from what you're saying, perhaps the best way to get things done and to get people supported inside the country is to work with those pieces of the country that are functioning well, to try to connect and partner. Is that is that accurate? Yes, I think Ukrainians have the logistics. And I think it's very difficult for many of the international organizations that never worked there before to develop those logistics during wartime in particular. And so it is, I think, more efficient to work with local organizations on the ground who have good reputations, who have websites you can check out what they've been able to deliver, how they deliver, what they've been doing, who their partners are. And they are using the logistics from the commercial sector, from the private sector. So they're using, the companies are cooperating with them. And it's a much better way to get that aid to those who are truly in need. Now, when we talked before, you mentioned that you felt that the distribution of aid was going a bit better for people who had actually fled the country than it was for people inside the country. And would you like to talk about some of the challenges you're seeing associated with that? Why is that so? And what do you think can change to to fix that problem? So first of all, it's really wonderful that there has been this incredible outpouring of compassion for the refugees that have fled to Europe. And it is heartwarming to see in every country from the UK to Romania to Spain to Poland, Poland having taken the largest share, how they've been welcomed into homes, into jobs, into kindergartens. Uh, these are primarily women and children. Men have been left behind because they, between ages 18 and 63, cannot leave the country because they could be needed in conscript for conscription. So it tends to be women, children, and elderly. And the international aid organizations, so UNICEF and CARE and on and on and on, have been very, very engaged and supporting. And it's wonderful. So it's not a problem. But And I can imagine that for most Americans, most people listening to this program, it's easiest to trust the organizations that you know, um, who have audited financial statements, who have websites in, in English. And so your natural predilection will be to give to a group that you've heard of before. My only hesitation here is that those 4 million people are now really well taken care of. And it's great. But the people back in Ukraine, the 40 million remaining in Ukraine, of which 6 million are internally displaced with nothing, really need your help. We have to make that extra effort to find the groups that can actually deliver in country. Some international do. So as I mentioned, World Central Kitchen does. But one of the things I've done is partner with Rick Elias at Red Ventures to collect funds that I will be able to work with the business people that I work with, with the organizations on the ground that I can vet and ensure that these supplies, essential services are, and goods are getting to people. It's at www.strongerthanever.com. And Rick Elias will be matching the first two and a half million dollars, dollar for dollar. So we'll get double our generosity. Are any of our relief organizations partnering with them that you know of? No, the large international groups seem to have want to either do it themselves or they don't want to work with a group that they haven't worked with before. So it's very hard for them to engage. I'm working instead with uh, local Ukrainian groups, as I said, that will have the logistics that have been delivering on the ground that can get to that last leg, those villages 
where you know, the cities may have food, the cities may have supplies. It's the towns and the villages outside. And people can't travel easily right now because the bombings are random. So you really need to get to that last leg. I would like to see if we could change that. I would love to see if we could get some of these organizations together with you to, to talk about possibilities. I, I just... I would be thrilled. I would be thrilled. You know, there's a, there's a real hole in my heart knowing that there are 6 million people displaced and there's a lot of money that people want to give to support them and we can't quite figure out how to get there. And I, I know the organizations want to see this happen. So let, we should probably try to figure out how to how to make it happen. I'd be happy to meet with all and any and, and about cooperation. That would be fabulous. Yeah, we'll, we'll make that happen. Let me Let me ask you this, though. So I know a lot of people are probably thinking we've given some money now and it's hopefully going to help folk. I guess we need to help people think about long term support, at least while the war is going on, because you can't really envision rebuilding anything really until the war itself is over. And so we need to think more in terms of intermittent and ongoing gifts to support rescue, relief, housing, basic needs that people have, given this situation. And it's we're not really clear when it's going to come to an end. So is that also consistent with what you would tell people at this point? It is. And, and, and I know people have been incredibly generous and uh, the Ukrainian people are extremely grateful. I think what we need to think about is that we need to prevail in this war because this is such an existential war for all of us and for the world that we live in. And when we think about our children, our grandchildren, what kind of world do we want them to live in? Do we want a tyrant and autocrat to be able to basically, through might, break all the rules, whether it's the UN Charter, whether it's the Geneva Convention on War, whether it's Helsinki Principles on Sovereignty and Territorial Integrity? You know, should we should we allow a nuclear power to blackmail us? Which will be the next nuclear power that blackmails us? And right now, you know what Putin is doing in in, in Ukraine, he's causing a whole secondary effect. You know, Ukraine is one of the, a major major food supplier to the world, in particular to northern Africa and the Middle East. They they feed annually about 400 million people. They're the second largest grain exporter, taking all grains and sunflower oil together. By not being able to ship, by not being able to plant, we're going to see a whole nother tragedy occurring. You know, and I, and I listen to, to, to leaders of the World Food Program say that they're right now already taking food from the hungry to give it to the starving. So we've got to end this and supporting Ukraine right now to end this more quickly will help us not have the cost of all of the other tragedies that this leads to whether it's, as I said, nuclear blackmail, whether it's autocracy uh, over freedom and democracy, or whether it's simply starvation in parts of the world that cannot afford to not have access to these grains. And so as much as I know people have been generous, I ask to consider you know, regular, monthly, biweekly, whatever works for you. Give up the Starbucks one week, 10, 20, $15. There are, that money goes a long way in Ukraine. And I think the Ukrainians are showing that they are putting everything they have into this battle. They're putting in their lives and they deserve to be to be supported if we can. And so it is going to take a while. It is not ending tomorrow, unfortunately. But 
I think the the courage, the the brave people of Ukraine have shown that they're willing to fight for us and for our democracy. And so it's a small cost for us. Yeah. I just think about all the young people there. You know, we just went through two years just about a COVID and we know how difficult it was for young people to be educated, to do some of the basic things that kids do, just go out and play and participate in sports and music and the things that kids like to do. And here we have a situation where it's not only the pandemic, but their lives are really ripped apart because of this war. And they they not only don't know when they're going to school again, they don't know when they're going to eat. They don't know if they're going to have a place to live. And I just feel that uh, I know, you know, most Americans who view that situation, who really see it and understand it, are going to be really uh, moved to try to do something. And if it means doing it over a long period of time, it's my hope that that we'll all find the uh, fortitude and the the encouragement to do that. Because as you say, we do need to prevail. Young people do need our support and families too. The only way that's going to happen is if we all find it um, in our hearts to give. And we need our organizations to operate effectively and to partner with those local organizations on the ground. And I hope that will happen if it hasn't happened already. And uh, we need voices like you, Natalie, to keep us focused, to help us understand what's going on and how we can be helpful. And so I thank you, too, for you know your forthrightness and your willingness to, to share with us what you know, what you're seeing so that we can be uh, effective in all we're trying to do to support what's going on there. So uh, let me give you, um, if you don't mind, and I know your time is short, but I want to give you one additional question. And it's a question that I know you can't really answer, but I'd like to just get your sense of what could happen. And I, I want to ask you how long you think it will take us once this is over for that country to get back on track and what will Americans need to do to support that? Not only American citizens, but maybe the American government too. Right. I think renewing and revitalizing the country is going to take a decade. I mean, if we look at, we look at Puerto Rico and, and the plans for Puerto Rico, it's expected to be about a decade. And it, again, it's just so much larger. New Orleans took about 15 years. So it's going to be at least a decade. I think we're going to need to build something close to a Marshall Plan, um, and not just the United States, but the G20 countries, our partners, and our international institutions. And I think we're going to have to look to confiscate as much of the Russian assets that have been frozen, the oligarch assets and the government's assets, as possible. Those Russian assets should form the core of that fund. Then our governments, our taxpayer dollars, our international institutions, and finally, there needs to be a very important role for the private sector. We need investors to come back. We need to rebuild factories. We, we need to really look at renewing Ukraine in a way that it's revitalized. And so Ukraine inherited Soviet factories that were extremely energy inefficient polluting. It inherited housing that was extremely energy inefficient and never built with the human individual in mind. We can rebuild a green 
economy. We can rebuild an economy that's meant for and with a vision of the individual. We can rebuild roads with electric vehicle charging stations and biking paths. We can, re we can rebuild communities that have services nearby and public transportation to connect communities. We can do this and rebuild a, an even better Ukraine. And so I think we're going to need ideas. We're going to need the innovation of uh, the American people, uh, architects, urban planning, green planning. All of that's going to be, be part of, I think, what we need to do as we look forward to revitalizing and renewing. So, Natalie, I understand that America will be taking on some refugees as well. President Biden has announced that he's going to be allowing 100,000 Ukrainians in on humanitarian parole, in essence, a form of refugee status in the United States. If, you can, if you'd like to support these refugees, if you'd like to support a family, sponsor a family, there is a site dedicated to this. It's called ukraine.welcome.us. Uh, initially, it was formed for Afghani refugees, and now they've expanded to include Ukrainians. It's co-chaired by the President Obama and, and Mrs. Obama, by President Clinton and Mrs. Clinton, President Bush and Mrs. Bush, and President Carter and Mrs. Carter. It's bipartisan, and there are ways to help. You can provide English lessons. You can just be part of a community that welcomes them. Um, you can provide physical uh, needs, depending on the community, or you can sponsor. So there's there's a way to help those who are coming to the United States and make them welcome in our communities. And well, then, uh, is there anything else that I've left out, you think? <laughs> That's perfect. And Art, if you have groups that are looking to, to partner, please send them my way. Yeah. So let's, let's get together and figure out what's, what we can do here. Well, I want to thank you again, Natalie, for joining us on the Heart of Giving podcast. Uh, we're going to have to have you back later on to just check in and see how things are going. And to all of our listeners, I want to thank you for, for listening. And you can find other editions of the podcast on all major podcast platforms. And if you want to support the podcast, you can go to give.org and make a donation, or you can find us on Patreon. Thank you very much. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.